the Cinema Silo podcast, where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Annie. I'm Frankie. And this is Jessie. Today, we're diving into my favorite movie that I watched this past year, Celine Siyama's masterpiece on the transformative power of love, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The story, set in 1770 on a secluded island off the coast of Brittany in France, follows Marianne, a young painter who is commissioned to paint a wedding portrait of Eloise, a young woman who has just left the convent to reluctantly marry the man her sister had been promised to before she committed suicide. Marianne must paint Eloise without her knowing, so she observes her by day and paints her by night from memory. Intimacy, attraction, and love blossom between the two as they share Eloise's first, and in many ways, final days of freedom. Uh, I love this movie. So good. (laughs) I have like goosebumps right now from that. Me too. It's not just about love and like passion. It's also like the independence of, of these women. Yeah, I mean, it's exquisite. It's exquisite. And its performances and its costumes, these settings just take your breath away. You're like, wow, I want to be in this chateau on the beach. I want to look over that cliff at these rocks. This screenplay also is just pretty flawless. And it won best screenplay it can when it screened at that festival, which that tells you something. That's pretty stiff competition. Frankie, what did you think of it? I liked it. I liked it. I did. Do you I didn't. also feel just this overwhelming passion? We feel it seems to me that Jesse and I share an overwhelming passion for a portrait of a lady on fire. I really loved it. I just um I don't feel what you guys feel about this movie. That's okay. I really loved it. I found it very sad and hard to finish in in an emotional way. So it's, it was rewarding. But it, it makes me sad. There's a little bit of the neorealist about it that sometimes, you know, it just really lingers on them walking up the stairs, walking between rooms, not really, you know, if they're going to pick up a glass of wine or if they're going to smoke a pipe, we're going to see every step of that. Um, and I just, yum, I love neorealism. It's so good. And, uh, you know, something that the director said about that, the kind of, you know, touches on this idea that it's kind of a sad movie. It's a little hard to watch. It's sometimes hard to finish. She said, if you want to share these women's intimacy, you have to share their loneliness. The good thing is that cinema is the only art where you can share somebody's loneliness in space and time. That's great. So, you know, I just have to say, I love this director. I love her. I think I love the commitment she has to that she displays in this movie like as a female filmmaker and like how that's part of who she includes behind the camera and in front of the camera right that this story is so explicitly you know driven by you know so many like intellectual you know inspirations but also this like kind of political and emotional one as well Yeah, I think a lot of people would know this movie as like a queer love story. These two women who fall in love. 
One of my favorite things that she said is, this is my manifesto of the female gaze. This movie is like soaking in female (laughs) gaze, (laughs) dripping in it. So good. Like the entire premise of the movie is that this painter has to literally gaze upon a woman all day and then reflect on her image at night and and create something that other people, one man in particular, will then gaze upon. As you're watching it, wherever the camera focuses on these different moments, it's catering to us, the audience, looking at like the hairs on the back of the neck, like that kind of like sexual gaze, right? Yeah, I mean, even like the first scene of this movie, right? It's before they've even met. And the painter, Marianne, is teaching a classroom full of young women how to paint a woman. And she's, she's essentially teaching them the female gaze. And that's how we start. And she says, you have to look at the outline of me. Look at my silhouette. Look at my hands. And take your time when you're looking at me. Do, don't rush this. And that sets up the whole film, right? That's like from the jump, we know what this is going to be. Like we're going to take our time and we're going to really look at these women and really look at them in a way where we kind of have to be taught to do it differently. To me, the female gaze, it's really about like using the presence of a female perspective on screen to emphasize a story's emotions and characters, right? Like if... The male gaze is all about what men see. Female gaze is fundamentally about making the audience feel what women see and experience. I mean, this film also deconstructs the idea of the artistic gaze, right? So it's not just a passive subject um, and an active artist. It's a reciprocal gaze. And I think that that does connect with what the director is trying to say about the female gaze in terms of restoring agency to people who are gazed upon. Yeah. Right? It's not it's not like the muse is an object. The muse itself is also a subject. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the, any any mythical idea of like a silent or like fetishized like muse or woman, that muse's presence itself is just inspiring, right? That's gone. She is actively involved in the creation of art about her. Mm-hmm. The first part of the movie Marianne, the artist, she makes a portrait of her and then reveals that she this is what she's been doing all along. And then when Eloise, the subject, when she sees it, she's like, this is not this is not great. Right. Like, you know that this isn't good. Right. Like, this doesn't capture me. Right. (laughs) And then from that point forward, Eloise works with Marianne to create her own portrait and it becomes a collaboration. And then it really becomes a reflection, like a true portrait. It was this kind of thing where it's like, just because a woman is involved, right, just because Marianne had painted it didn't mean, right, that was a female gaze, Absolutely. right? Female gaze isn't just like a female reboot of a male story or a male approach. Absolutely. Right? Like, like Ocean's 8 or the new Ghostbusters. It's like, it's lazy. <laughs> yeah. These are the same ideas, same conflicts, same like reading of the world. You're not proposing something new here. But okay, so in this movie, what is new? What what does Portrait of a Lady on Fire propose that is new? It's a period lesbian drama. We've had a few of those 
right? This isn't the first one. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> like, uh, I think what's cool about this is the... One of my favorite aspects of this movie is how it tackles the agency of a woman who is being looked upon. Right. And like that felt very new to me, you know, and a crucial part of that is how this film talks about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, right? which runs throughout the whole film is explicitly part of the plot. Um, it's a myth that the girls read to each other. And the director, Celine Siama, has specifically said that Orpheus and Eurydice is a Greek myth that feminists look at a lot because it's how the male gaze can kill you. <laughs> it is fatal. And that there's a tradition of looking at Orpheus and Eurydice and trying to see, you know, her point of view. And what I love in this movie is how they, you know, infuse the Orpheus and Eurydice dynamic between the two characters. In the Greek myth, Orpheus is kind of the quintessential ancient artist. He's a musician, but Marianne, the painter, steps in as that, right? She's an artist. And, you know, Eurydice is kind of the Heloise character. Um, and when the, the women read the myth to each other, you know, they talk about being outraged at how stupid Orpheus is. You know, they read about how Orpheus goes down to the underworld, convinces the judges to let him take his dead wife back up to like the land of the living. And you know, they're, they're like, wow, he's so convincing. It's kind of romantic that he does that. And then when he actually is taking her up and the condition that he, she will live is that he will not look at her. And he still looks at her. <laughs> And of course, like when I first read this, I was also outraged. I was like, Orpheus, what are you doing? Like, you're supposed to be like a hero. And that was not heroic, like to turn around. Right. Because when he, when Orpheus looks back at Eurydice, then she falls back into the underworld and then she's lost forever. Then his entire effort was for, for nothing because she never makes it back to the world of the living and they, they can't live together again. First of all, I love that scene because it's three ladies sitting around talking and they all three have different perspectives on the story. And I had never, like, I had heard a little bit about this myth before, but I had never heard these different takes on it. And then to see the way that that the takes play out within the movie, I, I thought that was really special and cool. Yeah, I love that, you know, the painter, Marianne, who's kind of an Orpheus character in this film, she posits that Eurydice mattered more to Orpheus as a memory than as a person. And that he doesn't make the lover's choice, but the poet's. I loved that. I love that interpretation. And then one step further, I love Eloise's interpretation that maybe Eurydice told Orpheus to turn around. Maybe she did have agency. Yeah, I, I loved that scene because she almost says it as a retort. Like, well, but maybe she told him to. Maybe she said it. Right. Maybe she said turn around. And I never thought of it that way. I never thought, oh, maybe Eurydice is somehow the author of her own fate here. She gets to make the decision. Throughout the whole movie, I felt bad for Eloise. Like she's being sent off to be married. 
she doesn't really have a choice or the only other choice she has is to commit suicide like her sister did. But when when she said that about Eurydice, I thought, well, maybe she does see that she has a choice or she feels like she is making a choice to go along with this marriage. Orpheus and Eurydice, the myth is explicitly in the story when the women read it to each other, but it also comes back at the end of the film when Marianne exhibits a painting that she's done of Orpheus and Eurydice in a gallery. A man comes up and he thinks that it's her father's painting and praises it. And she says, well, it's actually mine. <laughs> that's my brilliance. That's, that's my art. I love that painting. I love that it's, it's dynamic. It's the moment of turning where they're reaching out to each other. It's the moment when their fates are sealed. That's the memory. Seeing them falling away from each other. Which feels like, you know, that's what like movies do. They they're a dynamic way of capturing moments and like memories and you're you're sealing them into a time and a place forever. I keep thinking about the the title of the movie, a Portrait mm-hmm. of a Lady on Fire. This like smoldering burning feeling that's throughout the film, which could reference the title, but then also there's fire shows up in two places. When they're at the bonfire with the other women and then Eloise's dress catches on fire and then she's standing there and it's like this beautiful portrait of her literally on fire. And she doesn't even notice that she's on fire because she's looking at Marianne (laughs) and it's the fire between them that is consuming her, not the one literally (laughs) burning up her dress. See, I thought she did notice. No, she didn't. Another woman comes and tackles her. Right. Because it's like, right. girl, your dress is on fire. Like, <laughs> get it together. Focus. <laughs> See, I interpreted that scene as like, I'm going to step close to this fire and catch on fire and then look at you while I die. <laughs> I thought it could be. It, I thought it could be. That's interesting. <laughs> well, and then the, the second part where there's a person catching on fire is when they set the portrait on fire. The first inadequate portrait well i think it's interesting that you think that's like her saying i don't care like i'll die like i'll step into this and i'll like face death i think that's fascinating because i mean death does run throughout this whole movie Mm -hmm. right the fact that it's her sister who commits suicide and that's what brings her out of the convent and back to this place and like seals her fate was her sister's decision and then the first time that marianne and eloise meet each other to go on a walk eloise just starts running away from her towards the cliff and you know the audience and marianne we're all thinking oh my god she's gonna jump over that cliff just like her sister Ooh, like you're anxious <laughs> and then she stops turns around and says i've always wanted to do that and marianne says what like die <laughs> and eloise says no like run and just like how many things in her life she's never experienced. And that in these moments, these days where she's back here with Marianne, she's going to experience so many of them. Right. We see her running. She's never gone swimming. She loves music, but she's never heard an orchestra and she's never known love. There's so many like human experiences that she's feeling for the first time in these, what, like 10 days that they have together. She's feeling alive. So, I mean, yeah, even though in the beginning she is the one who's naive to the world, by the end she's the one who's in control. 
because at the very end, spoiler, she's listening to an orchestra alone, crying and have like feeling the, the music. The first time that I saw that, I thought, oh, she's sad because she misses her love and she's remembering Marianne and she's alone and unhappy despite being able to have all these things. But now that I think about it in terms of her finally being able to access her freedom, it's less sad and it's more beautiful because she is alone. She's not with her husband at the orchestra. She's able to go there alone and listen to it, feel what she wants to feel. And she has this whole bank of emotions now and bank of experiences that she didn't have before. Right. And this movie makes the argument that it's those experiences and those memories that are in some ways more valuable later as memories. There was one scene that I really liked where they're talking and they're like contemplating saying goodbye and like the end of their lo- their love affair. Eloise says that she's feeling something new and that it's regret. And then Miriam's like, no, it's remembering and then walks her through. I guess it was all the events from when they were falling in love with each other. Exactly. And then it becomes like a sweet thing. And so Marianne sort of teaches her also that remembering is good, that it's not regret. It's a paradox in a way of like what freedom is, like what freedom means to these women. These are kind of the last few days of freedom that Eloise experiences with the running, the swimming, music, love. And they address this the first time that Eloise goes for a walk without Marianne. When Marianne tells her she won't be joining her, she says, you'll be free. Just being free, being alone. And Marianne says, well, go figure it out. <laughs> you, tell, you have to tell me. And when she returns, she says, in solitude, I felt the liberty you spoke of. But I also felt your absence. Learning later that the absence isn't a regret made it's a beautiful memory. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, like if we're being honest about it, living in Milan... She's going to like be have like all of these things that she really likes. Eloise clearly loves books and loves music and loves like all of these different things. And she craves that. Like she craves being around other people and reading and listening to music and engaging all of these different parts of herself. And when she's alone in the chateau out in Brittany, She's not free to explore all those things in the same way that she is when she's in Milan, where she can go to the orchestra by herself without her husband and her kid. Like she can just be and listen to music and relive this love. And that's why it feels like a paradox, right? Because she's trapped in a marriage with someone that she's not in love with the same way that she loved Marianne. But she does have a life where she is free to access all of these other beautiful things. It's like you can't have it all. And like, we never thought they would. This is 1770 France. Like, this is like some ladies. Like, there's no expectation that we think they're going to have it all. We know it's doomed from the start. We have a sense that there's no way she's getting out of this marriage. I had to think, like, what would have been my ideal ending for these characters? Would it be that they would be together and living together in, in an attic in Paris and living on nothing? Like, probably not. Like, that probably would not be a happy life for both of them or either of them. Would that be real freedom or not? Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of what makes this story magical is that it takes place in an isolated space away from the realities of the world, except for what they know will happen later, right? For their fears about um, 
having to return to that world. It's almost idyllic. They have each other. They have female companionship and their own schedules. <laughs> Seriously, right? Like they, we're like uh, they, ideal. Right? We they they stay like up that. late reading by the fire to each other, just the three of them, right? And it's idyllic because it's not forever, right? Because it's the two women and then the housemaid Sophie. Yeah, and they're just and the mother has gone and left them. Yeah. And so they're sort of left to their own devices and they have this really great bond, the three of them, Mm -hmm. that I think is really special outside of the actual like love story. They're a nice little trio. Yeah. Sophie, you know, all kind of the hierarchy just breaks down. Right. You know, once there are no men, no mom, it's just us ladies. It's almost like when you watch like in movies about when kids have the summer off from school and it's just like perfect because they don't have to go to school. <laughs> they don't have to be with their parents. They just spend time together. But it's nice because they it's magical because it has an end. The tone of this film and what makes it work is that bittersweet quality that, you know, this is something that has to end. I mean, that's explicit in the film, right? The idea that it has to become memory and that's bittersweet, but beautiful. Right. It's this idea that it's not just the romance that is beautiful because it has to end. It's the whole experience of the isolation with the women, right? Also Sophie. Which is what makes quarantine not the magical <laughs> right. experience. Because who knows when it's going to end? <laughs> right. It's true. I mean, if these, if this was an, if these women were stuck there forever, it would not be as romantic. There is something about that. It would be, they would lose their minds. <laughs> like it would, right. It'd, it'd be, be like the lighthouse. Like the lighthouse. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it becomes a horror show. Whereas those men were like, how do I get off of this? They also were not forming a bond, even though they were on an island alone altogether. And there were like some erotic moments that they shared, but <laughs> they weren't able to form, forge a brotherhood. Like these women forged a sisterhood. Yeah. It goes beyond just the idea of romance. It is also that they're young, so they don't have families and she's not married yet, right? So they're on the precipice of this change in their lives, this transition period. It's that feeling of a long summer where the weather is nice and you know that's going to change as well. And also being with Sophie, so the female friendship. So it's not just romance. It's this island without men, <laughs> Which doesn't exist, um, especially at the time. Yeah. And I mean, Sophie, you know, she's, when everyone else is around, she's serving them. When they're just together, it's Eloise, who she calls mistress otherwise, you know, who's cooking her dinner while she gets to embroider her flowers, like hang out. I was surprised by Sophie's storyline. I didn't anticipate her storyline which is tackles like abortion yeah in 1770 Brittany they try out all of these different remedies for her problem right and there's no shame of like yeah. oh she's pregnant you know it's just immediately how do we help you I love that scene when they're forging for like abortifacent yeah herbs and it's like this beautiful like grass with the sky and then all of a sudden the women like pop up from different areas in the grass mm-hmm. where they've been looking closely for the herbs 
like looking at a landscape, like a painting, and are there women looking for herbs <laughs> to help each other get an abortion, <laughs> like hidden in the in yeah. the bushes in that landscape? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Sophie ends up having to have, you know, a procedure. Which is such a moving scene. She's the baby, like holding her hand through it. It's just ugh. and and then Marianne is kind of doing the same thing that as an audience you want to look away because you're just like, wow, this is overwhelming. And Eloise insists that she witness it and says, No, look. You know, I love I love art that bears witness you know, to experiences that you you don't normally see maybe you don't think about in the same way well i think going back to that question of what does this movie do that's new it shows how having that sort of representation in the arts turns things that let's say men might not consider to be beautiful or to be art and it turns it into art right things that things that were never considered subjects for artistic endeavors before right which is also a part of this movie, right? This idea that Marianne was trained by men and certain subjects were closed off to her as a female painter, right? Which means that certain people in society get to determine what is artistic and what is worthy. And this movie shows that their experiences like abortion that are worthy of artistic depiction. When they return, Eloise asks Marianne to paint, to recreate it. And she sets Sophie and herself up at, in a pose to have Marianne capture and paint the abortion. Which then makes you think this time, this idyllic time that they have together as being transformative for Eloise, that it gives her these experiences and helps her get tools to help her live a happy life later on. But also it changes Marianne because Eloise told her this portrait that you painted of me using these rules that men taught you, this doesn't work. Look at this. Look upon the abortion as it's happening. Now paint the paint, make a painting of that. And then later you see that Marianne showing in the gallery is this moment between Orpheus and Eurydice that no one else has captured before. So she was also transformed. And now she's, I mean, we don't know what else she's done, but she's, she's a, a different artist because of this experience. Yeah, I love I love this. I mean, even the song that the group of women sang at the bonfire, you know, those the Latin lyrics say, I can't escape, but we can soar. And really emphasizes that, you know, that alone, there's like a certain independence on our own. But really our power, the way we will fly, the way we will soar is if we do it together. She's just so beautiful. And, you know, the director wrote those lyrics um, for that song. That's cool. Uh, yeah, she she did. She said it was an adaptation of a sentence um, by Nietzsche <laughs> in Thus Fake Zarathustra. It basically said, the higher we soar, the smaller we appear to those who cannot fly. Alone we can't escape, but then we soar. But escape and soar are not mutually exclusive mm. things. They can be different. So you could still be in... A position where you can't escape, but then soar in other ways through these other bonds, these other relationships, these other aspects in your life. I really love 
how every element of this kind of contributes to bringing the audience in, yes. into the story, into the feeling, right? Especially with the music. Mm-hmm. Every part of this film is designed to bring the audience into their experience, right? Earlier we were talking about kind of the sadness, the bittersweet, the loneliness and the intimacy. You can't know the intimacy between these two women without also experiencing their loneliness in space and time, right? Which you get through the editing, you get through the cinematography, you get through you know, the production, the art direction. Every, every element of this really drives that home. But the most powerful one to me is the sound design mm. and all of the choices made around music. It's, it's kind of the same thing in this movie. You know, there aren't very many men Right, <laughs> like in the movie. There's not a lot of music. And there's not a lot of music. And it's not until a man appears that the absence of them is like truly felt. Yeah. It's the same trick with the music. It's like a, the negative use of it is amplified when it suddenly reappears, which I love, right? I love that it's, you know, the women singing together around the bonfire. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's Marianne trying to play Vivaldi on this like piano forte, like yeah. in, the, in the room. And getting frustrated with herself when she can't remember it perfectly. But still, Eloise's face is just full of wonder that she has this in her, right? And that she she could do this. And that to end on the final scene, having Marianne watch Eloise experience the same Vivaldi, but through a full orchestra. And you watch the full range of emotions like coming through this actress, right? She's performing, experiencing this music and experiencing the memory of everything we've just watched. And that's just such a beautiful coda to the film. The most powerful aspect of the film for me, it's related to the music, but it's really just how the film takes its time to get to where it's going. And at first, the first half of the film I thought was very slow when I first saw it. And I kept thinking, okay, this is good. It's beautiful. It looks like a painting. These women are interesting, but where is it going? What's going to happen? And then the last half of the film is when it really kicks up. But you need that first half for the film to be able to embody that change from loneliness and isolation to connectedness and community. The camera lingers in certain places on certain parts of the body or on the landscape and just sits there. All leading up to that last scene when you see Eloise listening to the music, the camera just holds on her face forever, it feels like. It feels like that scene goes on forever. And it's, the, for me, the best scene of the movie. Just that last oh, shot yeah. of her. It yeah. all builds oh, up yeah. to that. Yeah. She's and it's amazing. The shot. Yeah. Right. It's the exactly. reverse shot where you first see Marianne watching her and it's saying, hey, here's you. This is what you're doing right now. <laughs> it unveils itself as cinema. Yeah. Right. And then it flips. And now you are watching not only Eloise, you're watching this actress. Yeah. You are watching this whole film unfold in her face. Right. You're just seeing it. Experience that memory. Experience the, the movie. Right. And it's. <sighs> yeah. I like how they did that instead of like panning out. And then across or something. Yes. It's just the, the flip. Yeah. It's much more subtle. And it, yeah. it did everything. It was very powerful. I think the camera work is unusual in that way. And I maybe that's a part of how we can understand the female gaze is just how she uses the camera. It's not kinetic. It's I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's lingering in a sense, but not too long. Like how would you describe the camera work? 
When I think of the camera in this movie, I think of all of the tricks, all of the editing, all of the perspectives that kind of suture the audience into Marianne's perspective. Especially you know, whenever they're walking together. I mean, just the final scene. It just it's hard to shake. I think that something that Marianne had to learn was that she isn't the only person who's watching. Yes. And Eloise says, if you look at me, what do I look at? This film explicitly invites the viewer in. Okay, now that you say that, I have a thought. The last shot where it goes, it's Marianne's perspective looking at Eloise as she listens to the music. It's obviously connected to the allegory, the, the myth. But it's almost like Marianne is cursed with having to to see this in a way. And Eloise, like Jesse was saying earlier, it's not just pain, right? It's it's almost beautiful that she can tap into this depth of emotion and experience that she has had in her life. It's not just pain and loss and regret. It toes that line. She goes from that and then the end. It's almost, I mean, it's bittersweet, but an almost jubilant in a way, right? That she felt all of that in the course of this song and how amazing life is that it can allow you to connect in that way, right? But then really- Marianne mm-hmm. has to see this and gaze it and know what she is thinking and be also on her own, right? I mean, it's almost a curse in a sense, in a mythological sense, right? That she has to see that and can't reach out at the at the end of the movie marianne says i saw her two more times after that yeah but that's marianne seeing her that's not her seeing marianne and if you go back to that line of what is when marianne's looking at her what is what is eloise looking at she's looking at her child she's looking at um the artist who's taking her second portrait she's looking at the orchestra she's looking at her life that's what she's doing I would rather be Eloise in this scenario than to be Marianne. Interesting. I don't know. If Eurydice did say, turn around, and he turned around, then he had to watch her fall away. And then he had to go back and live his life without her. Yes. And that's tragic. And she gets to move on in the underworld. <laughs> right, Annie? Is that how it works? I don't <laughs> <laughs> by, by making the character of Eurydice have agency, I think is, that's like a new feeling for me. Yeah. That's never something that I thought of before and that this movie changed for me. You know, in the myth, eventually, you know, Orpheus is just heartbroken and tragic and has to keep living. And he doesn't last very long. And a bunch of women rip his body apart when he goes back to the nice underworld <laughs> and gets reunited with his love. So it's not, tra- I mean, in a sense, it's, it feels wrong to frame it in this way. When one person has freedom or an ounce right. of freedom, then the other person is, it's tragedy. Uh, that's not quite right. But I think, I think, I like to think that they're both doing their best in the society and what it will allow them to do. I do think, you know, and actually just thinking about that last scene, though, can't, I don't think that these different interpretations of the myth that play out as an allegory for the main relationship of this film, these interpretations cannot really coexist, can they? 
it can't be that Orpheus is making the poet's choice and Eurydice has agency. I think they can coexist. How? I'm curious. Because if I say, look at me, you don't have to look at me, dude. You just keep going. You <laughs> keep keep looking. That's true. Right? That's true. That's fair. Yeah. He could stop and think about it and say, is this a trick? Is this a test to see if I'll turn around? I really don't want to turn around. I'm not going to. Whereas if she, if you think about it, if she doesn't say turn around and look at me and he's making a poet's choice, his poet's choice is to say, you know what? I went through all that effort. She thinks she's going to get to walk out of here with me. I'm going to turn around and look at her because that's what I want. Maybe he's not saying that. Maybe it was a, it had to be a collaboration of yeah, her saying, turn around and look at me and him saying, okay, I will turn around and look at you. Now that you say it, it absolutely is a collaboration. You're right. <laughs> no, you're right. It's true. But I think it's still an uneasy one. Yeah. As that last scene plays out, because the idea of someone living in memory can be more beautiful and meaningful and also probably easier to process and heal from. Marianne is the one who's confronted with seeing this person, whereas Marianne only ever exists in Eloise's memory after they part, as far as we know. Your memory becomes something else. It becomes an image of an image with the whole scene of, of um, Marianne drawing <laughs> herself using Eloise's body as the model. The idea that your memory becomes something different than the experience. And Marianne is still experiencing something new with Eloise in that moment, yes. in that last scene. Yes, well, it's a, it's a shadow of it, right? It's a facsimile of the experience. Yeah. It's still a collaboration, I think. I just think it's actually, it's an uneasy one. And I think the reason that we feel that feeling in the, that last scene, which ends in a catharsis in a sense, but still I finished that movie like, okay, a little bit of a catharsis because of her facial expressions at the end, but man, that hurt. That was really hard. You know, I don't think you get that same catharsis that it seems that Eloise gets just by listening to the piece. I also think there's something to the fact that Marianne, because if you think back to the first scene when she's in her studio teaching the, the students and one of them pulls out a painting of that, that Marianne had done of Eloise, but it's the scene at night when Eloise is on fire. That's what draws Marianne into retelling this whole story. I mean, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when Marianne sketches herself into the book of on the page of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth with her head on Eloise's body. Um, and I, I love how playful it is that they, they put the mirror. So like they position the mirror, like how they do that. Yeah. On Eloise and just so gorgeous and just like, yeah. Uh, but I love in the painting and that's of Eloise in the gallery later on where she has her finger open to the same page, page 28 of Ovid's Metamorphoses where Orpheus and Eurydice part and that's where she has her visual memory of Marianne stored forever. And now it's forever in that portrait of her. Right? Yes. Yes. And I love the idea of she's kind of speaking to Marianne through this portrait, you know, that 
you know, that's the portrait isn't her. It's a facsimile of her, but it's still talking to Marianne. I, I really love all the stuff about film and, and cinema as something that captures like a shadow of yes. a moment. Right. And like all of the film theory from the early days of film about like, you know, you're literally pressing light onto you know, some celluloid. Right. And suddenly you have a shadow of a person and that memory, that moment is captured forever. But it's a shadow of it. It's facsimile. And I love seeing that played out within the film with the paintings with the sketches, you know, and that there's still, it's these shadows and you, that just, I can't help but think of the underworld and think of death because that's how the Greeks conceived of the underworld is that you become a shade, you become a shadow that like floats through the underworld. Can we, okay, bear with me, follow me on this one. Okay. Can we think of this film as as a spiritual, a spiritual, queer, female gaze, Titanic. Titanic? Titanic. No. Listen, hear me out. Hear me out. The scene where Marianne draws in the book with the, you know, well-placed mirror. Doesn't that remind oh you gosh. of the scene when Rose <laughs> strips down? And has Jack draw her? Paint her like one of her French girls? <laughs> this is one of the French girls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he looks cowed in that scene, right? He, she takes charge of herself in that mm. scene. I think also the idea that future Rose in her 80s or 90s, I don't know how old she's supposed to be in the future, that <laughs> she says, I have nothing left of him. I don't even have a photo. He exists only in my memory. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. just saying, I feel like this portrait of a lady on fire is kind of like the queer feminist <laughs> update, update to Titanic. <laughs> Take that, James Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Celine Siam is so much better than James Cameron. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah we can all Oh, agree. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, wait. So, then, is the opposite true? Is Titanic based on Orpheus and Eurydice? Is that mm. why Jack can't fit on the door? Oh, my God. Annie? Is that... Is the poet's choice... <laughs> Is the poet's choice that he chooses oh not to God. fit on the door, and then oh she lets him go. <laughs> Goose bumps. <laughs> I feel like they were just suffering from so much hypothermia. Like, they were not <laughs> making any kind of choice. Let's be real. Like, they're just, like, cold, cold, cold. And cold. No. Billy, <laughs> Billy, Zane, Billy Zane is the count that she's, like, she has to marry. Come on. Come on. But instead of having to experience... Well, but the, the problem with that is that then we saw the what that relationship was actually like and what that have, would have truly been like. She would not have been yeah, allowed to like, go to the orchestra alone. Yeah, but she would have, like, lived a high society life with access to all of this, like, beautiful art. Like, she would yeah. have had access to, like, all this stuff. And yet she's like, oh, my God, I would rather die i'd rather like kill myself on this boat than have to like go live there in, like in america and this rich life 
Like, okay, so I just read Jesse <laughs> gave me shit actually by Lindy West uh, for Christmas. And it's like a collection of essays where she just trashes movies. She just hilariously <laughs> trashes movies. And one of them is Titanic. And a huge part of her essay on Titanic is like, what is wrong with Kate Winslet? Like she is such a whiny baby about having like a beautiful, amazing life of privilege. And then she like says a ton of offensive stuff about kicking it with the poor people. <laughs> yeah. 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 But he slaps her. He slaps her. We can't have that. Oh, he does. Doesn't yeah. He? I, yeah. I mean, she's like, Eloise, she has all of these restrictions put on her, right, at the time, as a woman. But she does have a lot of privileges, and I think that is something I, I also feel with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is that this does, except for, with the exception of, um, is her name Sophie? Sophia? Sophie. Sophie. Sophie, yeah. yes. With the exception of her, it does kind of feel like, okay, okay you know? These kind of two wealthy, she, uh, you know, obviously Marianne's an artist, so she's a working, she's, she works, she's a working woman, but it does kind of have that feeling. It's also French, so. <laughs> it's also like you know. in the couple years leading up to the revolution. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. like. And it's like, okay. Yeah. And, and I, I feel that with Titanic too, but I do think at the end of the day that that is only a part of the story. It's also that they really are trapped. Right. And they find these people, these connections fleeting that open up them, that, that open them up to new experiences and help them see the world in a broader way in themselves. Right. And I also think that Rose's choices in 19 teens America are much broader. Yeah. It's much more acceptable and possible for a single woman to make her way in the world yes. than it than it was for Eloise. Yes. At that time, I mean, how would she even have gotten off of the island? Because to get on the island was an ordeal for Marianne. She had to be rowed by a group of men on a boat and mm -hmm. then trudge up like up the cliff. Right. So practically, Eloise couldn't just disappear into the world and then make her way even together. How would they get off the island? But, you know, there is the sense that Rose and Eloise... A part of their story and their character arcs is meeting and having meaningful connections with people who are of a lower class than them and then returning to their their class with that experience. Right. That's true. Yeah. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying this in a necessarily negative way. I just think that that is an interesting comparison and connection. You know, uh, Eloise spends this time on this island with an artist and a servant woman and has meaningful, real connections with them, but then she returns. And then Rose has a real connection with Jack, who is lower class. And they're both open to meeting these people, but then they have to return. They're, you know, they're in a cage, like a bird cage, right? In a sense. But they take those experiences and it changes them. I think what's interesting about Portrait of a Lady on Fire is that it shows how Marianne and Sophie are changed as well, right? So it's more of a, a well-balanced look at that than Titanic, which is only from Rose's perspective, right? 
there's much less of a reciprocal gaze in Titanic. Also, Titanic, an ideal, isolated, yes. a finite period of time. <laughs> a lit, like a gilded sinking <laughs> ship of wealthy people and the poor people, you know, trapped. Yeah, it doesn't get much more literal <laughs> than that. <laughs> um, yeah. One of my favorite things that Celine Siava said about this film was that she's trying to create an active viewer. She wants to put the audience in a different position. She literally said, we have a project for you. And I felt that. I mean, I could talk about this movie for a long time. And I've really enjoyed talking to you guys about it today. It's the kind of movie that right after you watch it, you want to you wanna digest it with someone else. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. So, and it becomes for- it becomes better after analysis and discussion. There's so many layers. And honestly, those are my yeah. those are my favorite kinds of movies. I love a movie that I can like chew on, mm-hmm. dig into, yeah. really, really feel something, feel in awe of something, experience something beautiful and new and challenging and transformative. And that movie did this for me. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 10 out of 10, five stars, A plus, two thumbs up, love you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are we going to do um, recommendations? One of my favorite things is that when we talk about movies, then there's always something else that's not a movie or that's like another movie that we end up talking about and and recommending to each other. Um, So I think we wanted to incorporate that at the end of our discussion. So. Um, we're going to do a little like further reading, further interest recommendation. Frankie, want to kick us off? Sure. If you liked the bittersweet romance of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, if you liked these questions about memory and regret, lost love, love remains, just like in the Titanic but better, I recommend In the Mood for Love, directed by Wong Kar Wai. Mm. It is mm. an amazing film that actually really captures a lot of the feeling that Portrait of a Lady on Fire does in a different context. Um, mm-hmm. It's also a period piece. Can't recommend that one more. Love that Wreck. We all watched that together this year, right? Yes, yeah, so good. It's so good. I, I mean, you pair this, you pair in the mood for love and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. You're crying all night. <laughs> <laughs> you are feeling. You are like Eloise in the last scene of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. You are feeling everything, everything. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. So my recommendations are two things that are not movies. <laughs> Uh, the first one is called Gorilla Girls, which is this like activist collective of artists who are women who want to bring attention to the lack of representation of women and people of color in in the art world. And they have this great like iconic poster. They've been around since the 80s and they do activist projects. And one of their posters is, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? And it's about calling attention to the fact that so few women 
artists are represented in museum collections compared to women as subjects, women being gazed upon. Such a cool way to to frame it and to flip it around. And I can't wait to go to a museum again and look at everything there in that way. (laughs) Second thing, another thing I loved about Portrait of a Lady on Fire was the shots of the artist. They had an actual artist who painted um, in the movie. And one of the things in quarantine that I've come to love is a YouTube channel called Baumgartner Restorations. And he's this guy who restores fine art paintings in Chicago. And I love it. It's soothing, but also interesting. And he's so precise in particular. There's just something about watching a human hand manipulate a piece of art. I'm entranced. I I love it. If you liked this movie and you like ASMR, take that recommendation. It is pretty great. <laughs> yeah. If you like watching videos on your like Facebook news feed of people like power washing their tires, <laughs> you're going to love this guy delicately removing varnish. <laughs> if you ever have the urge to put polyurethane on a painting, it, this will kill that urge from you. Yeah. Watch a video and then get back to me if that doesn't make any sense to you. It will make sense. <laughs> great recommendations. <laughs> All right, Annie, take us home. I'm going to say that if you liked this movie and you feel inspired to think about Greek myths or timeless stories of transform, like transformation, love, freedom, escape, check out Ovid's Metamorphoses. <laughs> nice. Which is where... <laughs> these ladies read their myth from and there are so many myths in there that I feel inspired by and want to update and inject with new life in the way that this film did and maybe you'll feel that way too who knows oh and uh something that you know Jesse also got me into was Madeline Miller's books so recently Circe which retells a lot of Greek myths, a lot from the Odyssey, from the perspective of a woman, Circe, a witch, and really flips a lot of things on its head, transforms a lot of it that I loved, I enjoyed. And her Song of Achilles, which if you read the Iliad, like if you read stuff about Achilles, like you know, like he was he was queer and he loved Patroclus. But Madeline Miller does give us a queer love story between Patroclus and Achilles as well. Lots to read, lots to check out, lots of YouTube videos, great movies. There's so many ways to tell stories about memory, love, escape, transformation, all the beautiful, juicy, delicious things we talked about today. But here are just a couple. Well, if you liked what you heard, then uh, subscribe and comment and also reach out to us and join the conversation on Instagram, Twitter at CinemaSilopod and our website, CinemaSilopod.com. Hope you enjoyed our first episode. Join us next time in the Cinema Silo. 